The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Just by way of reminder, our Lord has begun... Uh, a slightly different tack in his um, public ministry or his private ministry to the disciples. Verse 21 of the previous chapter, he's spoken of his death, that must, that which must happen. And then he's been transfigured on the mount in glory. And we'll see, as I hope in a moment, we see that our Lord comes back to reality uh, with the activities and experiences of the rest of this chapter. So Matthew chapter 17 Uh, reading from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However... Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We ask now, almighty God, that you will be pleased to bless us to bless us with the presence of the eternal spirit, that he might work in me words which are fitting and true, and work in all of us the hearing of faith, the hearing of trust. May we love you. May we trust you. May we see our Lord's humiliation, and may we see his glorification, and help us to live in light of those realities. We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Jesus has well and truly come down from the heights 
of transfigured glory, hasn't he? From the heights of transfigured glory to the lows, as it were, of his ordinary ministry, uh, the place of spiritual conflict, of pain, of trouble, and of turmoil. He comes down, as it were, from the highs of the glorification and the authority that was revealed in the transfiguration to the lows of spiritual conflict back in the plains. He returns to his ordinary earthly ministry. He returns from the transfiguration to his ordinary earthly ministry. And his ordinary earthly ministry is characterized, as we see in this text, by conflict, by death, and by submission. Uh, That for our Lord was the road that he had to tread before he could receive all authority and glory eternally. His earthly ministry is not now like his heavenly ministry. His heavenly ministry now knows none of the obstacles that his earthly ministry was confronted with, as we see in this text before us. And that's really the point of this section of narrative, coming as it does on the heels of the transfiguration. There is a necessity to this kind of earthly ministry before he can enjoy, and we can enjoy in him, the eternal ministry of his ruling and his eternal ministry of peace. Trouble before peace, cross before crown. That's the paradigm that is before us. We've caught a glimpse of the eternal glory of the Son in his transfiguration. Unfettered glory. And yet now what do we see? We see conflict, spiritual conflict of a most grievous nature. We see death, his own death, declared and proclaimed. And we see him submitting to a tax, a redemption, a ransom tax. Three scenes we have before us which appear at first glance to be unrelated, but they speak to this, the nature of Christ's earthly ministry which was necessary for him to undergo in order that he might enjoy his eternal ministry of glory and authority. We have then before us the great contrast, transfigured glory and then back to his ordinary earthly ministry. We see that in three scenes, three scenes set before us very clearly in our text. Firstly, Jesus returns to spiritual conflict with Satan. That's verse 14 through to verse 21. He returns to spiritual conflict with Satan. Uh, Then we see, verse 22 and 23, Jesus predicting his death. And then finally, in verse 24, we witness Jesus paying a redemption tax, a redemption tax. All of this is pointing us to the fact of the necessity of the character of his earthly ministry, and thus there's applications for us there, before he can enjoy his heavenly ministry. And there's also implications for us in that 
Let's look firstly then at how Jesus returns to spiritual conflict with Satan there in verse 14. One theologian, Don Carson, says of this narrative, it is a coming down to earth experience for Jesus. A coming down to earth. Now, Jesus is not just faced with this coming down to earth experience uh, in the fact that he meets a boy possessed by a demon, but he meets a boy possessed by a demon who could not be healed by his own disciples because of their unbelief. That's the conflict that is before him. For a moment, gone is the shining face of Jesus Christ. And he's faced by a clear confrontation with Satan. He's faced with unbelief even in his own ranks. He's back in the trenches of spiritual warfare. Confrontation with Satan himself. You see, friends, his public ministry is drawing to a close fairly soon. And his public ministry right throughout has been characterized by the kind of conflict we see in this passage before us. He has been warring with spiritual forces. Spiritual forces which are real. Even the demon possession, a real demon possession, which had real and catastrophic effects on the people they afflicted. Friends, if you want to know Satan's attitude towards you this morning, listen to this. Verse 15. The father comes to Jesus pleading for mercy. Why? Have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And we see in verse 18 that this is attributed to the work of a demon. The demon's cast out, he's healed immediately. This is what Satan thinks of you. This is what Satan would do to you if he could. We have an account apparently of an epileptic. That's a suggestion more than a translation, to be fair. The other gospels speak of a young man who has seizures, who foams at the mouth, who grinds his teeth. Mark also tells us this young man was struck deaf and dumb by the demon. We can see well why he would fall into the fire and into the water. His life is in mortal danger from being burned to death or being drowned, all because of a demon. Friends, we see very clearly here the utter malice that Satan has toward mankind. Utter malice, hatred, contempt. Satan hates God's creation. Even though he is created by God, he hates the rest of God's creation. And if he could do so to you, dear friend, he would do this very same thing. Now be sure he acts in different ways towards you. He would destroy your life by much more subtle means than casting you into a fire or into a lake. But look right here, this is what Satan would do to that which God has made good. This is what Satan would do In his hatred for God and his hatred for man, he gives no quarter and his goal is the absolute destruction of you. The absolute destruction of you. 
and this manifestation of wickedness and evil in the life of this young man, this boy, generates two rebukes from our Lord. Two rebukes. We see them there in verse 17, first of all. He rebukes the generation, the disciples who are part of this generation. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? One writer says that this rebuke reflects Jesus' pain and indignation towards the whole situation, the demon-possessed boy and the unbelieving generation in which he found himself. Indignation on the part of Christ. At what? A faithless and twisted generation. Our Lord makes it quite clear when the disciples come to him in verse 19 following. They say, why couldn't we cast him out? He he says, you're faithless. You're of little faith. That which they've done before as he sent them out, they could not do now. The disciples, through lack of faith, were unable to overcome Satan and his powers here. And the rest of the generation, what of it? We know the Israelites, the Jews, were led by, the Jews were led by people who hated Christ, twisted the word of God beyond any imagination, a twisted and faithless generation. In other words, friends, Jesus has come down from the high of the mountain to the low of the plains and he's surrounded in one way or another by various shades of unbelief and the rule of Satan in this boy's life. And he takes that indignation out on this demon also. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. To be sure, the epilepsy or whatever it was, the danger brought to him was as a result of a demon possession. And Jesus rebukes the demon. And the demon flees. What a wonderful picture. Our Lord bringing instantaneous relief to a child. A child under the profound dominion of Satan. Fits, blindness, deafness, muteness, sorry, and deafness. A terrible affliction healed instantly. He was liberated by Jesus. What the disciples could not do because of their unbelief, Jesus did by the power of the Spirit and cast the demon out. And the liberty, friends, that he granted this young boy is just a picture of the liberty that he would give to his people at the cross. It's a glorious picture that we have before us of the work and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this section teaches us three things. First, it reminds us of the basic pattern of our Lord's earthly ministry. It's characterized by spiritual and material warfare, struggle. We need to note in his earthly ministry, Christ's glory was usually veiled. Christ's authority, that which we heard of last week, was usually withstood. 
veiled and withstood. That's the pattern of his ordinary ministry. But the second thing we note, and this is a powerful reminder, is while that glory and authority were often veiled and withstood, his glory and authority were still real nonetheless. Still real. Still ultimate. Jesus said to the demon, come out, or words to that effect, and the demon came out. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled the incarnate deity. Here he is. Real authority. Real glory. Hidden for a time, prefiguring his heavenly ascension and ministry. Where his glory and authority are clearly manifest now. Yes, hidden for the remainder of this age from the eyes of mortal men. But we see it, and we know it, and it's real, and he is going to come again in glory and on the clouds and in power to judge both the living and the dead. And that leads us to the third thing that we must think about in this reality, when not to lose sight of this reality, that his glory and authority are somewhat veiled now, though they're real. And they will be revealed fully at his second coming when not to lose sight of this reality. Because we don't see absolute total victory, the new heavens and the new earth now, and we don't see them now. We ought not lose sight of the reality. Christ's earthly ministry looked this way and his heavenly ministry will look a very different way. Friends, doubts and fears arise in our lives as Christians when we try and make this world our home. This world is not the age of fulfillment. That's yet to come. In other words, friends, you have to wait for it. You have to wait for it by faith. And we are called now to live in the tension of faith. It's what the disciples were struggling with. They couldn't reconcile what they thought of Jesus and what he was telling them. They had to believe him by faith. We have to believe our Lord by faith. We live in the tension of faith. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. We don't see, yet we believe. We don't have the reality right now in its fullest possible sense, though we do in seminal form. We don't have the reality of a new heavens and new earth, of King Jesus ruling over every heart in this world. But we know it will happen. You are called, dear friends, to live by faith, waiting and not seeing. Indeed, sometimes seeing the forces of Satan apparently victorious. There is the tension of faith. Victory has been secured in the life, death, resurrection of Christ, but has not yet been fully revealed and manifest. That's the tension of this life. It's the very tension the disciples lived in at this moment. We can't have the new heavens and the new earth till the old heavens and old earth passed away. But we can and we must 
be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because his work of the past secures our lives for the present and our lives eternally. We live by faith with the tension that is manifest, manifest in the, this very passage. You see, it's the second coming of our Lord Jesus, not the first, the second coming, which is the manifestation of ultimate victory. And yet, and yet, the road to that ultimate eternal victory is the road upon which we find our Lord in this very passage. The ultimate victory will be revealed through the mechanism of his first coming, right here, right now in our text. The ultimate victory, as it were, in heaven cannot happen unless there is the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is what he tells us in verse 22. He tells us that the conflict and suffering and the cross itself must happen and is about to happen. Because Jesus predicts his death, verse 22 The gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. We've seen this teaching once before, chapter 16, verse 21, where Jesus emphasized the necessity of his death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, there's the necessity, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. Now he's emphasizing the fact, the imminence of it. It's going to happen soon. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's speaking to them of his death. It must happen. It is necessary to happen. And brothers, he's saying, it's about to happen. Notice the disciples' reaction. They're greatly distressed. They still can't reconcile what they think the Messiah ought to be with what the Messiah is telling them he must undergo. A victorious Messiah couldn't possibly in their minds be a dying Messiah. But that's the tension of this age. A victorious Messiah is a dying Messiah. And I think, friends, we make a mistake, a terrible mistake, actually, if we judge the disciples poorly because of their lack of understanding. We need to think of what the nature of faith is. Faith comes to us piecemeal, bit by bit, here, there, here, here, a piece here, a piece there. Think of faith like a bit like a jigsaw. When you empty out the contents of the jigsaw box, you have to start to piece together, piece by piece, the picture. That's how faith works. We're not just handed the Bible and suddenly our faith is, has crystal clarity on everything, is it? Piece by piece... Through teaching and through providence, God builds our faith. I'm sure many of us can think of in our own lives the difficulty we have had with understanding certain teachings or doctrines. And we've wrestled with them. 
We've struggled with them because it just doesn't seem to be right. But God has revealed to us in time the truthfulness of that doctrine we're struggling with. Or perhaps, and I'm certain this is the case for all of you, you've struggled with providences in your lives. Hard occasions, hard circumstances that God has put into your life and you've asked at least once maybe, why is this happening, Lord? And perhaps you've gone further than that. You've, you've mourned the circumstance in an ungodly fashion or, or you've even shaken your fist at God because you don't understand what God is doing through that providence. We struggle to receive providences from God, don't we? Think how much more the disciples must have struggled to hear that their Lord and Master was going to die. But Jesus is adding to their faith piece by piece, just as he does with us. Friends, it takes us back to the foundation of faith. The foundation of faith is Jesus Christ, of course, but the way faith works is this way. It is not by sight that anyone in this room was saved or united to Jesus Christ. Not by sight. But by hearing. And hearing or reading the word of God. We are united to Christ by faith. Not by sight. Faith lays hold, principally anyway, of what we hear. Not what we see. Otherwise it would be sight. And we wouldn't need faith. Faith is to believe what one cannot see. And faith is created by the work of the Spirit, of course, and nurtured not by what we see, but principally by what we hear. And yes, friends, we can look around at our lives and look at each other's lives and see abundant evidences of God's goodness in our lives. We can see it. When you look around now, you see... I don't know, 225 people, evidences of God's goodness. You see it. But principally, we have heard of God's goodness. And that's how God brought us to faith. When we see God's goodness, we should rejoice in it. But when we don't see evidences of God's goodness, we ought not then question God's goodness. That's what the disciples are doing. How can this be real? How can the Savior, the Messiah who we love and and we want to serve their thing, how can he die? You can understand why Peter would say, may this never happen. Why would they want him to die? Well, they would only want him to die if they had understood by hearing what he and the scriptures had taught them. Friends, think of ourselves think of the circumstances in your life which make you begin to question are things going to be all right health concerns whether you're burdened about the state of our country uh, whether you've lost your job or in danger uh, or your family is in ruins and you're tempted to think are you not that God's purposes for good are not being worked out in your life God's promise of goodness and providence, the way he works things, appear to be on a collision course. Promise and providence colliding. But we have to say, friends, they never can. 
God's promise is what he has said he will do. God's providence is him doing it. How could they collide? How could they contradict, even though they might seem to? Providence is God outworking his promise. Providence is God outworking his eternal decree. Whether the providence be good or ill, and we see this most clearly in what our Lord is saying now, his own death is an example of this. Whether the providence is good or ill, it is still nonetheless the outworking of the perfect plan of God. Friends, secure that in your hearts. Because it will help you live in the tension of faith that we are not there yet. We're not in heaven yet, but we're called to live as if we are. God does what is good and right and just. He has promised to do it and providence will bring it about. Friends, it's a call to us as we reflect on the disciples' great distress at their Lord's impending death. It's a call to each one of us to be steadfast and immovable, to be trusting resolutely in the word of God and in the person and the character of God. We are never to doubt God. We are never to doubt his word. We are to trust him, dear friends, that through the most fiery of trials, he will bring about his perfect work. Is that not what he did in the death of our Savior? And if he did it there in the the greatest possible occasion, will he not do it in every other lesser occasion in our lives? The death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord not only speaks to us of the nature of his earthly ministry, but it speaks to us of the eternal security we can have even now through the fiery trials of this life. Yes, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ were necessary for him to enter his heavenly ministry and bring us unto himself. His death was necessary that he might redeem many souls for glory. He might redeem many souls for glory. And that's the point of the last scene of our text, verse 24. Now, this is a complex passage. And, and we could preach, obviously, a, a number of sermons on this alone. We might think, what on earth is it doing with the rest of this text? Why is this section on a, a strange tax being lumped in with the previous two scenes and being set in contrast to the transfiguration? Well, I think a lot depends on how we understand this tax. We read in verse 24, they come to Capernaum in Galilee, And the collectors of the two drachma tax come to Peter and say, does your teacher pay the tax? Present continuous. Does he pay it? Is he going to pay it? And and Peter says, yes. The two drachma tax. The difficulty is when we search scripture, there is no two drachma tax found in scripture. We shouldn't be surprised about that because we understand what the Jews did to the rest of God's law. But we do find a tax a tax very similar to this two drachma tax found back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30. Very important because I believe it's the foundation of this two drachma tax. Uh, This tax in Exodus 30 was paid during the time of census. So it was a very occasional tax. 
Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 30 of this text. Verse 11. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give, listen, a ransom for his life. A ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, half a shekel. We read this uh, in verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring, pe- may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Listen to the language of this tax. A ransom for their lives. Atonement money. They shall bring this money so as to bring the people of Israel to the remembrance of Almighty God. It's not really for the remembrance of God, is it? Because he can never forget. It's that the people, by paying the tax, might know once again, God remembers us in mercy. Uh, One writer says this tax was to teach them their lives were forfeit because of sin and must be redeemed. By this rather insignificant amount of money. Notwithstanding the sacrifices of the Old Testament, there was this census tax that reminded them their lives were forfeit because of their individual sin and must be ransomed, must be atoned for. And yet we get to Matthew chapter 17 and we find another tax, the two drachma tax. What's going on here? It appears that the Jewish authorities took this census tax and twisted it. That's what our Lord has just said. It's a faithless and twisted generation. Turned it into a yearly tax and increased the amount of money in the tax. Staggering. So, for example, the discrepancy between Matthew 17 and Exodus 30. Exodus 30 says half a shekel, which equates to one drachma. And yet here our Lord is being pinged for a two drachma tax. Double the amount that he was required to pay only at census time for the ransom of a soul. And so what does Jesus say to Peter? He says to Peter in verse 25, what do you think, Simon Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do the kings take toll from their sons or from people outside of their family? Well, a king doesn't tax his own children, does he? Not as if he's a decent king anyway. And Peter says, from others. And Jesus says, well, the sons are free. But nonetheless, go and cast a line into the Sea of Galilee. Draw out the fish and you will find in its mouth a shekel. Actually, that's not a good translation. It should be the the idea of a a, a stator. That's a four drachma coin. Two drachmas for Jesus, two drachmas for Peter. He says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. He says, pay the money to avoid the offense. Pay more than we're meant to. On an occasion, we're not even meant to be paying it. Pay more. Jesus is willing to pay four times the original tax, probably at a time he shouldn't even be paying it. He pays it not only for himself, 
but he pays a tax also for the life of Peter. What's going on here? Three things again. First, Jesus says, don't give offense over small things. Even when the state or the religious establishment requires of you that you pay something that you don't have to pay because the sons are free, he's the son of the king, Jesus is, and so is Peter, pay what you need to pay to avoid causing offense. Think on this. Not only is Jesus the ruler of God's house, he's the very embodiment of God's house, the temple, John chapter 2. He's not bound by this earthly convention of paying the two drachma tax, but still he pays it for the sake of his gospel ministry. Listen, Jesus paid a tax so that he could go about his earthly ministry without giving offense to the people around him. That's worth us giving it some thought. But the second thing going on here is that Jesus is teaching also about the doctrine of sonship of adoption. He says the sons are free. Jesus saying, I'm a son. I'm the son of the king. I'm the son of God. I'm not bound to pay these kind of taxes. And he says to Peter, so are you. There's clearly enough union and faith in Peter, while he might not understand everything, to be a child of God. And Jesus says to him, just as I am a son, so too are you a son. The wonderful status, dear friends, of those united to Christ by faith. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We have liberty in Christ. But there's also something very deep, very theologically deep going on here. It's another example of the principle we saw in Jesus' baptism. Remember that image we spoke of Jesus going down into the waters and all the people are being baptized by John. He pours the waters on their head, symbolically as it were, washing off their sins. And then Jesus steps down into that sin-infested waters and has it poured on his own head. He's identifying himself with sinners there so that he might go on and save sinners at the cross. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's paying the tax For a soul, his own, that did not need to be ransomed. Because he's sinless. And yet he pays the tax and says to them, I will be made like you so that I can save you. I will be like you so that I can save you. The message was this. Jesus had to be made like sinners. He had to be identified with sinners. Ultimately, that his sin, their sins might be imputed to him. Oh, but Jesus had no need to ransom his own soul. No need whatsoever. There was no ransom. There was no atonement for the soul of Christ. In paying the tax, not only for himself, where he identified himself with Peter and with sinners, he paid the price for Peter and for any here who love Christ as Lord and Savior. Friends, we bring this to a close. Think on this. The message here repeatedly is that Christ must and that Christ will die. And yet in that death, through that death, That is the time where Christ is doing greatest battle with Satan and the power of evil at the cross. He crushed Satan's head. 
The message is this. This is a savior who consistently seeks to identify himself unashamedly with sinners. To the point that he will bear our sins on the cross. Friends, I ask you here today, whether you're Christian or not, what else are you looking for? What else are you looking for in a savior? You want victory over Satan and the forces of evil? It's done in Jesus Christ. You want victory over sin in your own life? It's done in Jesus Christ. You want victory over death itself? It's done in Jesus Christ. What a savior. What a victor. What a conqueror. What a son. And he says, you, dear children, are sons also. Victors and conquerors in him. Are there any here today who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior? We would plead with you to repent of your sins and rush to Jesus Christ right now. Because there's no other remedy for your sins. And as surely as Jesus crushed Satan in judgment, so too will he crush you eternally in judgment unless you flee to him for salvation. This truth that Christ is a great savior and a great conqueror is certain. And it's a doctrine which brooks no doubt on our part. So friends, when trials come upon you, ask yourself, Is there any lack in the work of Christ Jesus? Ask yourself, is there any lack in the person of Christ Jesus? Here we have the glorified, authoritative Messiah who identifies himself with helpless sinners so that he can ultimately die and save helpless sinners. So what we've sung earlier on, isn't it? The last verse of number 279, now in the Father's glory high, great conqueror, never more to die. Us by thy mighty power defend and reign through ages without end. Friends, our Lord came down from the heights of transfigured glory and know this, he has ascended to the greater heights of eternal glory. And know this also, he will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. To bring his people with him into the realm of unadulterated glory. Where we shall be immune from sin. Immune from sorrow. Immune from death. We will dwell in that place wherein righteousness dwells. The place where Jesus reigns. And scripture says we shall reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, be pleased to write these words and thoughts upon our hearts. That we, your children, Lord God, might know that even though our Savior still waits to come again, That the glory has been revealed in him now. And he will come again in glory. We praise you almighty God. We praise you Jesus Christ born the king of angels.
We adore you and bless you. You who are Christ the Lord. Amen.